Yo, what's the deal, baby? This your boy, Uncle Luke, formerly of the Two Live Crew. You are listening to Pass It Down with Mike Silver and Natalie Silver. Natalie is the most beautiful young lady in this deal right here. Mike doesn't look so good, even though they're dad and daughter. It's the big show, baby. Well, we are back and our conversation with Sage went long, but it was great. He had so much to say. Um, Last episode, he told us about how Kyle Shanahan changed the way that he saw the game of football. And yeah, and during his last year with the Houston Texans, uh, as a sub for the injured Matt Schaub, he went four and one as a starter. The one was kind of a famous game, though, and we start out by getting into that. And then he talks about the crazy 2009 season when he was the presumptive starter of the Vikings until Brett Favre unretired in training camp. Uh, well, we all know the NFL hired you just so they can keep you under control a little bit. Just well, say, I, I used to do owner rankings every year, first at SI and then at Yahoo, and it was. I did not spare, you know, it got kind of personal. So I listen right now I'm at NFL network. If I ever had to leave and start resume owner rankings, I'd probably pick it up a notch, but in the meantime, so, so Sage did really well. He's being modest when he had to play in Houston, when Kyle eventually was the offensive coordinator, he was probably, I, I think I said at the time, he's the best backup quarterback in the league and I and I felt it, and I, we weren't even friends then. I was just like, this guy's literally, you know, of all the thirty-two teams, I'd rather have him by far. Well, well I at the time, you know, Shab had, had they well, then they brought in Shab. I didn't play much when when David was there, but when Shab and they met, you know, at that time they signed to a, you know, I, I know it's crazy, but it was like eight million dollars a year, yeah. which was like good starter money. You know, yeah. the, the games changed so much, but now I was making a little over a million or something. So, but after I played, and he kept getting hurt. Yep. I was more athletic. Um, I was probably a little bit more exciting player. Like I threw a lot of touchdowns, a lot of interceptions. I kept it exciting. And Matt wasn't really an exciting quarterback. He wasn't a playmaker or anything like that. And so I, and I, again, I, I played a lot in the, the two, my last two years there. And I think there was a decent amount of people who thought that I maybe was better than Matt or that maybe I should be starting. I wouldn't get hurt. And I was bringing us back in games or he'd get hurt at halftime. We're down by two touchdowns and make it interesting in the fourth quarter. Um, but I knew it wasn't going to happen. And so I worked that trade to Minnesota, but yeah, so having, so Kubiak. And the Vikings had tried to trade for him the year before, but I know I read that. And so, but the year that they traded for him, Brett Favre had forced his way out of the Packers, played a year for the Jets, and now had retired for the second time. And so it looked like when the Vikings made the move for Sage, he was the guy to the point where I was writing song parodies for my weekly Yahoo column at the time. And I wrote this song. Uh, I was Brad Childress singing on somewhere north of Mankato, somewhere on the highway north of Mankato. And it was Bob Seger's turn to turn the page but turn to sage and i was really proud of those by lyrics. the way when we were when we were um looking all this up we realized that yahoo deleted all of your bylines yeah. from your archive yeah so i if i ever do leave nfl network it probably won't be to go back to yahoo <laughs> given the way that that has dissolved but if anyone ever sees the turn to sage Lyric altered song dedication of the week. I wrote that. And anyway, so, so it was all going, 
It was all before, looking awesome. Before it's, we get to Minnesota, before okay. we get to Minnesota, let's 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 wrap up Houston real okay. quick. Okay. When I was leaving Miami to go to Houston, you know, and then and, and you know, of course, free agency starts on like March first back in the day, and mm-hmm. and on you know, of course, my people are talking before, of course, and I have an idea of what this contract might be, and so I, Houston gives me this offer. I called up Jason Garrett and I said, Jason, what, you know, and I loved playing for Jason. I actually didn't mind playing for Saban. Of course, you always prefer to stay if you can in the same city. Sure. I had been in, in Miami for four years and, and those things. And I said, you know, this is the contract they're offering me. What do you think? Sort of going like, what are you guys going to offer me? You know, and, and he, he was a quarterback coach. He probably didn't know, but he probably knew what their plan was of what, who they were looking for and what they're trying to do. That's when they, instead of going for Drew Brees, they signed Dante Culpepper, by the way. That's, yep. you know. Yep. Um, so, so Jason, he did, rather than saying go to Houston, he said, you know, you know when you have that out route to the left, you got to open up that left foot, point your target, and really stick your foot in the ground and really let it loose. That's what I recommend you do. That's what he said to me. Like, so that's all he really could. He said, take the freaking deal because yeah. we're not going to offer you yeah. that contract, you know? Right. And um, so I go to Houston and, and another person I talked to was Brian Greasy who had played for Cougs in Denver and, you know, sort of about the offense. And I'm like, well, if Brian Greasy went to the Pro Bowl and then I had played with Brian in Miami. If he can go to the Pro Bowl in the offense, maybe I could actually pretty, be pretty decent in it. And Kubiak, I think he sort of changed my life in a sense from a quarterback perspective of just, I, I got to learn the game at a higher level. And then Kyle, again, quarterback coach, the coordinator, it was, you know, not that Kubes was holding him back, but Kubes was still more traditional. And Kyle was like next level. Like, well, when they do this, we should be doing this. And I was like, oh yeah, we should be doing that. But yeah, like, but Kubes doesn't know that play because that's not, part of the system that he know and and over time Coops would bend like yeah let Kyle install more of these plays that he liked and let him maybe even start calling plays and it sort of became Kyle's offense and we became despite the fact that like we had like not really a pro bowl offensive lineman or uh like star running backs or anything we had Andre Johnson Owen Daniels was a heck of a tight end Kevin Walter we, Kevin Walter was our number two receiver, you know, like David Anderson and uh, Andre Davis, who was fast. I had these guys in the slot, but we didn't, we, you know, we didn't have like superstars all over the place, but we were like the sixth best offense in the NFL with Matt Schaub and me at quarterback. And you realize like this offense really works. So then again, after I play a lot and I'm like, okay, it's, it's time. For, I'd like to start. I think I can start in this league. As you said, I was the best backup. I, a lot of people said that was probably the 20, maybe the 25th best quarterback yeah. in the league. Maybe yeah, I, I that was so. four and one as a starter in, in one, in one year beating Gruden uh, when they were pretty good and beat Denver on a Thursday night game. Um, and was, so the, this- was the one, the game that Peyton went nuts at the end and you lost, or was that a different? Yeah. So I had a game that's the Rosencopter game, uh, which is probably my, I call it the highest and lowest point of my career. Because for 56 minutes, I outdueled Peyton Manning, uh, whereby we were up by 17 points. He scored with four minutes left to go up. We're up 10. The onside kick, we get it. I try to run for it on a third and seven. I try to helicopter two player, or a player. 
these two guys spin me around. I fumble, they pick it up, scoot and score like a 65 yard touchdown. So the highest and lowest point of my career. At least, at least you went, really, least you it's went a very, it. it's a, I, that's the thing. Well, when you're the, when you're the small town kid, I grew up watching Jim McMahon in Chicago. You think Jim McMahon's sliding on a 37 (laughs) to beat Peyton Manning in a duel? No, he's going for it, right? And that's and and you're playing in preseason games. You got to earn the respect of your teammates. It's go. You're you're definitely going for it. I I had helicopter. I'm not helicopter, but I had jumped over people and gotten hit and flipped over probably three or four times in like random games in you know preseason games that no one saw when there's ten thousand people left in the Dolphin Stadium. This one just happened. I fumbled and they pick it up and scoop and scored. And then, of course, I don't remember the rest of the game. Concussion protocols, not what they are now. Oh. All right. So, I mean. It's on that play I, that you. I think it wasn't. I think it wasn't apparent. I think I was like very functional and like, I'm sure people checked me over, but I, it was not like I took a test or people were asking me questions. It was like, oh, Sage seems fine. I don't remember the rest of the game. I also fumbled on the next possession where I got stripped out of my hand. And then Peyton scores. And then so so we're up three and then Peyton scores there to go up. And it was like, you know, we weren't coming back from Sage fumbling twice in the last four minutes. And and so yeah, it's this, it's this like wild play of my career that didn't turn out well. And who knows if it if that doesn't happen, like what happens after that? So you we'll go never- so you go to Minnesota, it's you and the late, unfortunately, Tavares Jackson are going to compete for the job, but it's looking pretty good for you based on what they paid you. And it's Brett- looking pretty good, but I, but I will say straight up, I went from Kyle Shanahan and, and to Brad Childress. Please elaborate. It was trying to, to run the VHS copy of whatever the Philadelphia Andy Reid offense was at the time. It was, again, it was, these are the plays that Andy ran in Philly that Brad sat there and listened to and probably installed a lot himself. But why are these plays being run versus what coverages are we trying to attack? Why aren't we doing more play action with Adrian Peterson back there? What's the details? And we do do a play action that are like, just like the run to really fake the defense out. We, we didn't have any of that information. So if Kyle was up here intellectually with his offense, where, where was this attack? For me, well, as far as like Brad's, in my, in my opinion of, I guess, understanding of like deep level science of football at the bottom, it was at the bottom. And, and I always like, you know, he went to Chicago as like the spread game consultant or something like that. I'm like, oh, watch this Chicago offense be terrible. <laughs> what happened the last month? <laughs> Chicago offense was terrible. So like I would even like, well, wherever he goes, the offense is going to just take a dive. He also had like a, just a a hard personality to deal with. I think, um, and I'm not trying to like rag on Brad. I don't, you know, it's, it is what it is, but like, I, he, I thought he played the power game a lot. He also wasn't like Kubiak. He was the head coach. He was in charge. It was his football team. It was his decisions. It was going to be done his way. I once got, I once got a text during a meeting from one of your teammates in Minnesota. And he said, Chili just told us, quote, I'm going to be coaching a lot longer than any of you are going to be playing. And I texted back, tell Chili, I'm going to be writing a lot longer than he's coaching. (laughs) Well, Well, in that, but that mentality sort of is that's management versus labor. And so where Kyle would be like, you know, you'd ask Kyle or even, even Coops was cool with like, 
you'd ask him sort of why, and he knew why. But if he didn't know why, we were sort of like, well, why not? And so there was like discussion there and openness there. And it wasn't the West Coast offense wasn't like the Bible that just was you couldn't change anything. Like This is what it is. These are set in stone from thousands of years ago. And you don't change it because, you know, I it worked in 1984 when Joe Montana was hitting Dwight Clark. It worked when he was hitting Jerry Rice. It worked when you, you know. And, and it's going to work now. It's you get a lot of, it just works. It like, it just works. Yeah. Like we're going to run this play. And the first guy is Y on the shallow. And the second guy is X. He's 10 yards over the ball and he's going to push up. He's going to go vertical and he's going to come back to you. And the third guy is over here. What are we running this play? Like, what are we trying to looking for? This play just works. And, and I tell you what, yeah, I know Farver and Green Bay. He was hitting that tight end all the time. You know, and like, and so, and I wasn't good enough to do that. I was like, because I'm the, the intellectual probably, you know, maybe I'm stroking my ego like I'm a smart guy, but like I, it helped me to anticipate if I understood why I couldn't just go back there and like fire away and like, let's make it happen. I needed reasons so I could, so I could uh, anticipate and, and function better. So two things. One, I just want to establish that Brett was going to re- was retired, but then he unretired. I, know, I remember this. Late. I was remember but this. one of the great signature moments is that Brad Childress, the coach, the big tough guy, went and picked Brett up at the airport. He was the guy who went and like, oh, Brett, let me come carry your bags and stuff. So it was this weird, like, I'm the tough guy, but Brett, please come play. <laughs> Brett's one, you know, a legend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but. Correct me if I'm wrong. I know a lot of guys on this team. Correct. And you were not one of my sources back then or really ever until after you were done. We talked a lot. But, like, correct me if I'm wrong. Brett felt very similarly about this offense to what you're describing. He did, but he also had excelled in sort of like this sort of older school West Coast offense as well. And he was so good. And he had just run these plays so many times that he did just sort of like, and he could make it happen. His arm was insane. And his like accuracy was insane. His toughness was insane. And he had seen all the blitzes and he'd seen all these things. And so, and he really wasn't, he had never been in like Kyle Shanahan's offense. Like his life could, he could have been so much better than he was if he wasn't asked to do, to be Superman. We're seeing it right now with Aaron Rodgers. Hey, Aaron, you don't have to be Superman just to be good in this offense and occasionally like make a play. And sure enough, and I knew when LaFleur went there again, like you're getting sort of like a young Brett Favre and Aaron, um, at least physically in some, in some different ways uh, in this like unbelievably structured and creative offense that relies on running game and play action. And, not, and he's got the arm to push the ball down the field and he's getting guys. Kyle used to get guys wide open. I was like, man, if, if guys like Favre or, or, you know, great players could, could have this. And, and then having the running game with some average like sixth round running back back there running for 1400 yards. Like I, I wonder how far could do in it. And so, yeah, he knew all the things with this offense and he knew how to audible and he'd been it because, you know, Bevel had come from Green Bay. So he'd been pretty much running this offense anyway. So for him, it, you know, and, and then I would teach him these. I, would, I became a coach that year, 100%. And I would like occasionally like, so well, Kyle Shanahan would do this, this. And he's like, oh, I like that. And then he, <laughs> he'd like do that. And he'd like do that in a practice. 
and like drive the coaches nuts. He's like, well, this makes more sense. And I'm like, yeah, like, yeah, yeah nothing, you know. Didn't Chili, didn't Chili try to pull him out of a game though? Like against the Panthers, if I recall? Well, be, be, before, we'll, we'll get to this Panthers story. Okay. But let me tell you, when, when Brett was in Childress's Escalade, uh, driving from the St. Paul airport or whatever they were, to Eden Prairie, to our practice facility. This was over the lunch hours. We had just had our walkthrough. Chili's not at our walkthrough. No one really knows. No, he had told me that morning, me and uh, uh, Tavares, and I think John David Booty. So there's a John David Booty uh, uh, mention on this podcast. I love it. He told us that they were signing Brett Falk. Yeah. And me and Tavares looked at each other, sort of like, well, I mean, what are you going to do? You know? So I'm sitting in the lunchroom, Jared Allen's at my table, Ben Lieber's at my table, I think Chad Greenway's at my table, and we're watching the O.J. Simpson-esque Brett Favre uh, 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 car coming down the interstate. And they're, you know, I, I, th- I think Greenway looks at me and he's like, this is uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, then Brett shows up in the whole thing and and I was just sort of like, well, I guess it's going to be a different type of year. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to ride this thing out, you know? I'm like, I might as well be a positive influence on this deal. I'm not going to sit here and be like, the disc- again, I'm just happy to be in the NFL. And at the end of the day, it's like, listen, I can't complain. I'm making, I'm making more money I've ever made. I ended up being the third string guy because Chili liked Tavares. He was like sort of his guy. So I'm back here, third string quarterback. Brett's never going to get hurt. So I'm never going to play. So I might as well at least like, maybe we can win a Super Bowl. I can get a dang Super Bowl ring because this team is amazing. Yeah. Adrian said all these guys and, and we came really, really, really close, but the, the Carolina game is this Carolina is probably week, you know, 17 weeks. So probably week 14 near the end of the season, we're trying to get uh, that first, uh, first seed. We're going to, it's going to be us to the saints. Probably we're right there. I think it's a Sunday night game and Carolina wasn't even that good, but they had Julius peppers and he just, destroyed Bryant McKinney the entire game. It was a man handling. I'd never, he's a 375 pound man got treated like a child. It was really unbelievable, but we're winning. We're still winning the game in like the third quarter. Bryant McKinney. Sorry, it's like, on. it's, it's like uh, early third quarter, maybe, maybe. And we're winning like seven to six, but Brett's getting the crap. Beyond. But some of that's like Brett. He would like to hang on the ball. I mean, sort of, sort of like Aaron. Aaron likes to hang on the ball. So he could take some hits. But it's like, you know, if you just get rid of the ball, you wouldn't take all these hits. But that wasn't Brett's sort of personality. So Childress walks over to Tavares and I and says, says to T-Jack, he says, I might pull Brett and put you in. And then he walks away. And T-Jack looks at me and he goes, I don't want any piece of this. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think Brett Favre had ever been benched no. in his whole career. And he wasn't even playing bad. You know, like, it's like, what, what, we need to win this game. He's not playing bad. Why don't we, like, chip on the left tackle and help Mac out? Why don't we leave a tight end? And why don't we do, why don't we do anything? No, we're going to put T-Jack in. Like, like, what is going on here? So we end up losing the game. Uh, uh, we he go didn't back. actually do it though. Right. He never pulled. He didn't do it. He didn't do it. Uh, so we go back and, and I'm, you know, I, I maybe I, 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 I come in the locker room or whatever. Maybe I'd come out of the shower and I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm in my towel or whatever. And, and the quarterbacks are like in a little corner 
and Favre's talking to uh, Bob Hagen and Tom West. They're the Vikings PR guys. Yeah. They've been there for a long time. And nice Bob's an Iowa State guy. Yeah. So he was super excited when I got there. So I've gotten pretty close to these guys already. And super they're nice super excited, but they're sarcastic. And they've seen, I mean, they've seen the Randy Moss and the Love Boat. And they've been through it all yeah. up there in Minnesota. Yeah. And I can just tell that Brett is just beside himself. And, and I, don't, I have no idea, like, the conversations that him and Childress were having. And Brett's like, man, I, I can't take this anymore. Like, the pe- people got to know about what's going on around you. Like, you know, the, 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 sort of like the general public needs to know, like, the sort of the shit show that this is behind the scenes. Yeah. And I said, you're not going to say anything. I, 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 I got 20 bucks for you that you don't say anything <laughs> about this. And Brett went right up to the, right to the, to, got ready, went right up to the, to the thing and said, yeah, Brad was going to bench me. He was going to take me out. And the whole <laughs> shit hit the fan. <laughs> Supposedly, like, Childress came running out of, or, or, like, somebody walked into, like, his office and, like, Brett just told everybody you were going to pull him. <laughs> comes running out. Brett was already on the bus at that time. It was a whole, like, it became like a scandal on our football team. Well, so did they run it? No, it was in a press conference. Yeah, so like, it wasn't, no, it was in a press conference that he actually went up there and said, like, yeah, he is going. He yeah, and they were like, uh, and they were having a great season, and Brett was an MVP candidate. Like it was, yeah, you know, like yeah, it was we a, end up twelve and four that year, yeah. and, so and that was the year he threw the pass to Greg Lewis on the lat fourth down of the last play, and he barely got his feet in against the Niners. That was a crazy season. The, the best throw I've ever seen ever. In the, in the sport of football. That was the best throw. The Pat Mahomes one, if it would have been caught where he was like sideways, sideways and like yeah. laddered the ground, the Super Bowl, that was, that was up there. But the one for the, the game winner on like basically the last play of the game, uh, the, that Greg Lewis, the San Francisco game, that was, I think to me, the greatest throw I've ever seen. That was insane. Absolutely incredible. And he was making magic all year. But I felt, you know, I, I felt really good that I was sort of contributing to the team in some way, you know, which was basically sort of like his, you know, cause Daryl Bevel, who I always have really liked, he's a very straight and narrow sort of guy. And even though he and Favre are, I guess, friends, Favre and of super straight, they don't always like, they, not that they don't see eye to eye, they can't really connect. Yeah, Brett's they, they need like a middleman. And yeah. I could sort of see both. And I've known Beryl, Bevel was a quality or a, a grad assistant at Iowa State when he was like 25 years nice. old uh, because my college coach had come from Wisconsin. So like there was all this history I've had. So I was like this, so I was a mixed like sort of assistant quarterbacks coach. Also had Kevin Stefanski in the room that year also. Nice. Um, and then also like therapist, like there was this whole aspect of massaging, you know, bevel upset because Brett changed the play and, <laughs> and, and, and Brett and the whole, all of it. You were feeding uh, him the Kyle Shanahan plays. It's your fault. <laughs> you know, and, he, and, he had, and he was 33 and seven or whatever he was that year. Oh, okay. So, okay. So we got to talk politics for a minute. We uh, like we, so we had uh, your former teammate Gus Farratt and some of his family members on the literally the day, the Saturday that the election was finally called and, or no, it was the day after it was, it was Sunday and we were hungover. We, I mean, we were, we were super, super relieved and happy. And you and I have fought, uh, you know, the battle for, not more than these last four plus years on Twitter, really longer, but 
you know, as we fight for the soul of our democracy, you and I have a way of both calling attention to a lot of the hypocrisy and bullshit, but also getting the triggering the the lunatic racist right wingers. Um, I, I, I don't. I, you know, I don't uh, get off, as they say, on like triggering. I'm not trying to trigger. No, people. no. But you're going to stand. You're going to stick up for democracy. I, I think for me, I think what for me and, and now I had grandparents that were probably more conservative. I think my mom's dad was like he ran for county something at one time as a Republican, one time as a Democrat. you know, so. And, and I think my, my grandfather probably voted for all candidates. You know, my, 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 my mom's dad voted for Lee Iacocca in like 1988, because anyone that can turn around Chrysler should be the president of the United States was his <laughs> phrase. So, you know, I grew up in this household where it wasn't like, you know, all Republicans are bad and all Democrats are good. Yeah, you, you know, and, 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 <laughs> and listen, the, the Democratic Party is far from perfect. Politics in general is, is, is a sort of a crappy industry because it is an industry at this point. But I always felt with the Trump thing, that long term, I knew, or I feel like I know, that I'll be on the right side of history. And you, and and I you think are. he's like legitimately a bad person. Can, he is a con man. Yes. And that everything that he does uh, is really for himself. And he has no shame. And he's willing to sell anything to get a dollar. And I think I've, and it seemed pretty obvious to me. Um, that doesn't see, seem obvious to, I thought I saw it today, 46% of the Republican Party would leave the Republican Party if Trump started his own party. That would right? be great. I'm, I'm all for that. So, okay. So, and right, and 75 million people just signed on for four more years of it. Yeah. Other things. Let's yeah. talk, we've obviously, we could talk about him forever. Let's talk about the, the current Republican Party because you lived in Houston they just went through an unspeakably brutal, you know, situation with winter storms and la- no power and the grid failing, the unregulated grid failing. Um, their most powerful politician is Senator Ted Cruz. And um, he had kind of a rough go in that he can really Cruz. Forward, yeah. uh, getting <laughs> he, his tan off. He tried to. Bounce, he did bounce to Cancun before he. Uh, I think we should just change his name to Rita, as in like Margarita, <laughs> like Rita Cruz. Did you see uh, there was, that, that you see there was a mariachi band outside his house? I think too. I did. I did. You know what I find fascinating about the current like situation in Texas, uh, and if you start looking at, like the parties, and I know it's really easy to get into these sort of uh, bullet point differences in the party, pro life or you know, big government, small, I wish there was small government too. I wish my taxes were smaller too. You know, like, I think we'd all like to pay less taxes if possible. If we meant we had like a, a, a functioning society where people that needed help got help. And I mean, I have a disabled sister. Thank God she gets some money from the government. And believe me, it's not enough because I'm chipping in plenty to make her life better. Um, but what we saw in Texas is this, probably the, 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 you have the president and you have 100 senators in this country. You have 435 Congress people. So Congress people have way less sort of power than the senator. The senators have tons of power. And um, he's probably the, as, as powerful, basically as powerful as the governor. He is the, the connection from that huge state to our federal government. And the first thing he decided to do 
was because his daughters asked to go to Cancun and stay at the risk Carlton, his wife, wife found a deal was to go on vacation. And, and he, he did blame it on them publicly. Would you, would you do that to me? <laughs> no, I would well, not. And then blame, so there's a couple of things there. One, blaming the kids because like, what are you supposed to do when your kids decide they want to leave the country? Like, well, then it's also, and no one's really talked about this. To me, it's a backhanded uh, 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 shot at his wife. She can't take the teenage daughters to Cancun by herself. She is incapable of doing that. And by the way, he, he's not the only high profile Republican who has taken a shot at Ted Cruz's wife because Donald Trump. Donald Trump did. And then you know, Ted Cruz I, I, I thought I saw, did I say, I thought like Lindsey Graham or some, or some fairly strong Republican, like, you know, I hate all politicians, but no one hates more in more than like Ted Cruz. Like Lin Lindsey Graham said that if Ted Cruz were shot on the Senate floor, that they'd have a hard time finding a senator who would vote to convict. Yeah, which means like he's not even liked in his own party. Right. But somehow he does 1% of the hearts and minds of the great state of Texas uh, to vote for him. On the other hand, the guy that he lost against, Beto O'Rourke, um, was out. It seemed like to me, this is he's, you know, you can make fun of community organizers, but he was organizing. I think they called something like 800,000 people yeah. in just the first couple of days that were all older people to make sure they had what they needed. And if anyone needed help, who has any idea how many lives were saved with that type of work? Yeah. Right? And the, Ca the Castro brothers were doing it. I mean, I, I, so then I, let's, let's extend it further, though. Right. AOC, who seems to be like one of the more hated people uh, in the in the conservative party, in the Republican Party, in the Trump world, um, she's raised like five million dollars. Now, let's let's uh, do the equivalency, because we're all in the worlds of equivalencies and false, false equivalencies mm -hmm. that like when California's having issues, I believe Trump was like trying not to give states money that didn't vote for him. It was oh, like, oh. If you didn't vote for me, you're not getting the FEMA money. When there were fires, he said that we just weren't raking. We didn't rake enough. enough. We, yeah. In That's fact, right. After this podcast, get get the rake. Well, um, and, the, and the lovely lady from northern uh, Georgia said that the Jews started the fires with lasers from the sky or you know something what? like that. That is, so. that is supposed to be a secret. Hasn't that is been to a Hall of Fame induction. <laughs> she right. hasn't seen what we can do. <laughs> so, so uh, well, okay, first of all, Ted Cruz was one of those who tweeted at California when we had power failures because of the fires about how green energy did this and kind of crapped on California. He also voted against sending relief to New York in the wake of the hurricane in 2016. You know, so juxtapose that with AOC. Can we talk about the insurrection for a second? Sure. Yes. I texted uh, a, a friend of mine who is, she's been a Republican her entire life, just how she was raised and it's, it's how she believes it's fine. All right. And we've, we always have these conversations and she continually like, will text me about something I read on Twitter. It's like, that's not fair, blah, blah, blah. And, um, and she said, well, it's real." and she was in law school. She's like, well, it's really hard to say he incited the violence. That's a tough word. And I'm sitting there going like, it's, what he did is literally the definition of it. They organize it. They told him to come there. If you put the pieces, like, how can you not say, you know, it, the coach that gives the pregame talk <laughs> incites his team to go out there and play wild and crazy. And that's what he did. 
And in true Donald Trump form, he said he was going to go with him. And of course he bailed because he's not going to do that because he doesn't care about those people. He only cares as much of what they can get for him. Right. And that is a true, I don't know if you call it a sociopath or a psychopath or a narcissist. Of course, a narcissist. But I mean, but the, 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 the weird thing is the people that are so convinced by it. And I do think um, over the course of the next few months, the next few years, we're going to, the, the best part about it is they took sort of some of the worst of like the most Trump loving people, the ones that are all in, they were willing to, even after all this evidence, drive or fly or whatever to come to dc to to do that and so many of them were in the capital so many of them have been arrested and will be arrested and whatever i'm hoping it takes down a lot of those far right uh white supremacy oath keepers those groups very fine people (laughs) <laughs> but the, the, because, you know, because six of them were in there and they're actually going to the FBI will really do its job because now they really did something hugely illegal before they were just preparing to do right. something. And by something the way, shout out for the social me- media posts, the videos, the, you know, thank you for a lot helping to incriminate. Yourself. So, the- so have you thought at all about just, you know, putting your hat in the ring and, and running for something. I hadn't. Um, I really hadn't two and a half years ago. It was like Thanksgiving and I was called into a meeting. Uh, and you know, uh, maybe a, a year or two earlier I had gone over, um, and I had caucused. I actually just, I just showed up. Uh, I wasn't like the big Bernie Sanders supporter, but I had a friend who worked for his campaign. So I was like, I had nothing to do on a random Monday. So I like drove over there uh, showed up at the Bernie Sanders campaign headquarters in like North Des Moines. I drove around a bunch of college kids who were doing there for, they're there for credit or something. And they were just, I drop them off and they would go knock on doors and not even try to get them to vote for Bernie Sanders. Their job was just to get them to vote. And here's the information. Here's where the, the caucus thing is and yada, yada. So I just wanted to be a part of this, ex- this experience. And so I go over there, but I met a guy that was a part of Bernie's campaign, of course, like at that headquarters I also got to hang out with like the kid from Hunger Games. The, 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 you know, there's the girl, Jennifer Lawrence, and there's the guy who's like the, 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 love, the love interest in the movie. I don't, the blonde guy? No, like, no, no, not, not no, like the, she's like the, he's like the other, there's the, they're like the couple. I got to hang out with him for like two hours that night. Really? I don't remember his name. And <laughs> my, of course, my daughter was like super psyched about that. <laughs> um, and uh, so anyway, about uh, two and a half years ago, I get called to this morning and this guy's like, Hey, you want to come over to this meeting? We'd like to have the conversation. So I get called over there. So I drive over there. It's about two hours from Omaha and I go in this meeting and I spend about two hours trying to say no to these couple guys trying to convince me to run for Senate in the state, in the great state of Iowa against Joni Ernst. They really felt that I could beat her because, you know, while I was the Iowa state quarterback, and probably like my Twitter presence, I had enough guts to go out there and, you know, I had pretty progressive views, but I think it was more, I think they actually understood that it's not about like how smart somebody is. It's not about like probably what their policies are. 
It's how popular are they? Wow. So it's they star, could, people are they star could, fuckers. And they could probably get enough Iowa State Cyclone fans who would vote a Republican their entire lives. But man, I love that Sage Rosenfeld when he was back in the Cyclones. Remember that inside bowl? <laughs> yeah, throw that bowl game. And he led us to the greatest year in school history. And certainly, you know, I'm from Iowa. I'm from a town. I'm from a small town. I'm also from Eastern Iowa, which is sort of, it's near the Mississippi River, so it's sort of the end of the Rust Belt, which has that sort of Obama-Trump vote. Like my hometown, my home county, Jackson County, there's 99 counties in Iowa. It's usually in the bottom three as far as poorest counties in the state. Wow. Okay, so it's that, you know, I guess you want to call it working class, blue-collar uh, county. I think the average household income is like 27000 in the county. Household income, not individual income. Wow. Um, and it had voted for Obama by 24. It had voted for Obama by 16. It had voted for Trump by 19. Whoa. Wow. So this is the, like, these, who, who are these people? I know these, I grew up with these people. Mm -hmm. I didn't leave that County unless I was going Christmas shopping at the mall in the quad cities. Cause we didn't have anything like that. Right. So, um, and, and Democrats, of course, have done well in Des Moines in the bigger cities. And then, of course, along the river, there is, again, it's that sort of rust belt because it's just on the western edge. You know, we're, we're short shots distance for three hours from Chicago and Miss, Mississippi River and, and all those things. So they thought that if they could win the sort of the, the eastern side of the state and then, of course, Des Moines, that they had you know, enough votes to beat Joni Ernst. And, I, and again, I spent about... So they gave me their pitch for, they gave me a long pitch. It was like, we think this and here's our strategy and here's the stats and here's this and here's that. And, and I said, guys, here's the deal. I'm driving home after this. And tomorrow I'm going to wake up. I'm going to go work out. I've got a podcast I have to do. I'm going to break down some film and then do this radio show in Minneapolis. I'm going to pick up my daughter from school at three o'clock. Uh, we have uh, basketball practice at five. I'm going to make her a snack. I'm going to take her to basketball practice. And after that, I'm going to do, you know, and then on, on Thursday and then on this weekend, my son's got a basketball tournament and I got this. And then next week I don't have my kids. So I'm going to go on a vacation and I'm going to go to, you know, Los Angeles to see my cousin or something. And they're like, why would I want to give up all of that? Mm -hmm. So I can go get my entire life scrutinized and for half the state, to hate me, you know, and it just didn't feel like the right time in my life to make that jump. And their answer was, because I was sort of making it about my kids. Their answer was, well, don't you think because your children and their future, that that's the reason that you should run for Senate? They tried to like sort of guilt me into, into it, but I, I didn't do it. If he had beaten Joni Ernst, it would, then we wouldn't have to worry about Joe Manchin so well, much. Well, you were going to be my, my uh, at least one of my writers. I, yes, yeah, I, spokesman I, probably, yeah. Maybe a, a team. Uh, you know, oh, Harvey, Harvey Green was the Dolphins PR director, and he was big. He's always been big in the Democratic Party of during campaign season, traveling around and sort of helping with the PR we, stuff. We would have had to have someone who could handle new media, though. That's Green, all. Silver, my, my accountant is his name was gold. I mean, it's a whole lot And then, so then that happens. And then I don't know if a word word got over to Nebraska, but okay. no more than like two months later, I get caught into a meeting in North Omaha to run for Congress against a guy named Don Bacon, which by the way, 
if your name's Don Bacon, you have to be a congressman from somewhere in the Midwest, <laughs> Iowa, Nebraska. And they asked me, again, try to con- like, sort of convince me to run for Congress in this. By the way, and I, they asked me to run for Senate in Iowa. I don't even live in Iowa. I live in Nebraska. So I'd have to move 18 miles and live in Council Bluffs across the river mm-hmm. and figure this whole thing out with my kids and their schools and all that. And I was like, that's just, I can't, I'm not going to do that. So they tried to get me to run too. And again, I, that, my answer was sort of the same. Like, this is not the time of my life to do it. This is what I'm doing. I'd like to have a life post-career, maybe at some point down the road. Um, but right now, I, I want to do this. I would like you to ask a couple of questions of my, my co-host. I do. Natalie, you've actually been pretty quiet. Of course, I've been rambling here. I, I do want to ask you this question. What? Okay. All right. So I, I do wonder what it's like. And I've got two daughters. And sometimes I try to like put myself in their shoes, like their dad's those, you know, at this point it's this old retired quarterback, but like, what's it like to be, to have a dad Uh um, who is out in this crazy world that is the NFL that he, and he's also a guy who stirs the pot. Yeah. He's not just, you know, there's a lot of football writers out there. You know, Peter King doesn't stir the pot all that much. He's a football writer a little bit, but he's not, I mean, your dad's a little bit of an instigator. Yeah. He'll troll a little bit. Oh, totally. He's obviously, you know, he's really, really smart. Um, but, but not only that, but also like lives in the world uh, and as nerdy as he is, but lives in the world of like the macho NFL, like sort of the opposite of it. You would probably think his natural personality is, but how is it to be like the daughter of like that type of person? That's a good question. I don't know if anyone's ever asked me that. Well, I think it's really exciting and really fun to just kind of be on the periphery of that and to, I don't know, just hear the stories at dinner and kind of just be involved. And I think it's also kind of nice because like I, my brothers are are pretty into like following the NFL. They're huge Packer fans and um, they, the three of them definitely nerd out over sports and the X's and O's and the players and everything. But like, I think it's just kind of fun to, I don't know, be on the fringe and just kind of be part of the conversation. I think it also does. I I don't know. I don't think I think of you ever as being part of like a macho world. I think if anything, we make fun of it, but you're not really macho at all. I'm going to leave you with a story about her and Houston and a Super Bowl party you attended because we want to bring it back to Houston. So, and then you, then I'll give you a chance to close on your own terms. But so I, the first Super Bowl party I hosted the year before was in Berkeley because she was a Cal student. And I actually did a panel with Jared Goff, Amy Trask, Dequel Jackson, and, and Scott Fujita. And I wanted the Cal students to be part of the Super Bowl. And, and the next year it became me, Jeff and Carissa co-hosting and that was the first one in Houston you attended there's a great photo of us and Sean McVay and Richmond Flowers I've got, and- I've got a great Sean McVay story about, about okay. this so, that I want to tell afterwards so, so <clears throat> as I was getting ready to go to that party um Leslie was home with my her brothers my sons Greg at a high school basketball game that night and I was kind of getting ready in my room and a friend of ours from college texted me and said, Hey, there's something going on at Cal right now. Like you should turn on CNN. And it was 
this, the, you know, Milo Yiannopoulos, the, the, yeah, he was going to speak on campus and the Cal students, you know, it's like we're free speech and civil rights. There are a lot of history there. They didn't, it, there was a not in our house element that I hundred percent approve of. And it became a production value uh, situation that I, also- I, I I'm I'm ha- I'm happy like I, the cancel culture is like I'm happy to cancel all the racists right so and 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 I also believe in well pro- it was also like okay free I, speech you can speak right speak and too. I also believe in production value they set something on fire by the fountain at Sproul Plaza that wasn't a risk to to burn the campus but it looked really you know good for the cameras and so once I saw the fire I'm like okay I, Leslie's gonna hear about this so. I text Natalie and I go, hey, what are you doing? And she's like, not sure yet. We're kind of on the outskirts. We're assessing. And I go, how's your cell phone battery? She's like, pretty good. So I'm like, okay, just stay in touch with me, please. So I now I text my wife and I'm like, hey, there's some stuff going on on campus. I'm in touch with Natalie. And she's like, immediately freaking like, well, what are you going to do about it? You're hosting a party. I got to go to Greg's game. I can't deal with this starts getting a little wigged out. And so as this is going deeper, I got to get in the cab and go meet Jeff and Carissa, go to this party. And I get a text from Natalie and she says, quote, so if I get arrested tonight, is mom going to be mad? And I'm like, Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> then I start negotiating and I'm like, if there's any way you could wait a week and to go to jail, like it would really help me when I'm back. It's been a long season. And she's finally, she said something like, fine, I'm not going to throw rocks, but I, if they tell us to leave, I can't promise that I'm going to leave. And I'm just like, Oh my God. This I do. I do feel like, I do feel like, and I, you know, knowing Mike better, obviously, and then sort of following you, Natalie, and then occasionally like listen to a podcast or whatever, um, is that like, you are this like younger female version. Yeah. She's- uh, and thank God you didn't get any of his looks. So I get, <laughs> but, right. So, so I get, but, a te- but you, there's, there's so many similarities there. It's, 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 you know, it's like the hand in the glove thing a lot. And life. so as I'm realizing the trade wreck and my wife's going to kill me and I get a text from her and she's like, Cops gone, protest over, we win. And I'm just like, thank you, God. And then literally the next night, she storms the court after a Cal buzzer beater basketball victory over SC, which that's also a rarity that Cal would do something epic in a big sport. And so, like, she had the whole college experience there within that one, I guess it was during the week. It was like a week, but that was the night we had our Super Bowl party. Yeah, so so we had I knew you, Mike, before that, but not that well. I think probably since then, maybe that night because you were going out late night. That whole week, the Whataburger. Yeah, there's a whole we had a two hour. We're like looking for a Whataburger like three o'clock in the morning, driving from one to the next because they kept being closed, and we go to the other one. And John McVay at all? Yeah, yeah. So so, but that night I walk into this party, and I think it was Wednesday night, right? So I just maybe I just got into town. And, uh, um, I sort of show up at the party a little bit late and, you know, I'm sort of like, I'm walking in solo and I think I'd maybe come for like an, the NBA game or something like that. Uh, and I'm in this group of guys and I think, I feel like one was like Mike Garofolo and I knew him cause he was working for the New Jersey something or other when I was playing uh, for the giants in like nice. 2010. Um, and maybe he had recently gotten hired by Alpha Network. I don't even really yeah, know. Yeah, that sounds right. That's um, so we're sitting there talking. 
And this short guy uh, with blonde hair starts talking to me. And he's like, it's like, you're Sage Rosenfels? I'm like, yeah. And he goes, yeah, you were a heck of a player back in the day. And I'm like, oh, thanks. I appreciate it. <laughs> he goes, yeah. You know, when, when Kyle installed our offense and, and a lot of the bootleg stuff and man, he, the first it was always, you know, most of them, it seemed like were yours more than Shobbs and the way you ran the bootleg and this and there. And I'm sitting there going like, who is this guy? <laughs> and I didn't know who it was. And then I like, I was like, Gareth, like, who is this guy? And he goes, that's Sean McFay. I'm like, oh my God, that's Sean McVay, <laughs> who I didn't know at the time because, you know, he wasn't in Houston. He, he joined on with the whole Washington thing when, when Kyle left Houston to Washington with his dad. And I'm sitting there. And not only that, he had just been hired like maybe three weeks earlier or two weeks earlier to be the head coach of the Los Angeles Rams. And I just knew like, Oh yeah, there was this like shorter young guy that got hired, but I didn't really, I wasn't like really in tune with the whole situation. And then, you know, I, now I feel like I'm pretty good friends with Sean, like ever since, but that's my story of, of that. My first ever Mike Silver, Jeff Garlington, Chris and Thompson Super Bowl party on Wednesday nights, which to be honest with you, it's like one of my favorite parties because it's not, the absurdity of, you know, the playboy party and the, this party, the Nike party, it's just like the media people. And it's not all, all NFL network people either. It's ESPN and some box and some, yeah, this there's, and there, we, you know, we have uncle Luke, we have some, you know, like, do. Yeah. Miami last year, which I don't know how we all didn't get COVID, but Miami last year, when I, when we were in, the, it was like sort of after the main party was sort of done, but we're in the back in the bar and, and Luther Campbell is rapping Warren Sapp is also rapping and Mike Silver is being hugged by both of them. <laughs> I just had a moment. <laughs> it was pretty good. <laughs> so, so, so here's my next, my next question to Natalie. Yeah. I know like the questions of course about your dad, but how does it feel from your dad being an NFL writer, mm-hmm. pure writer to now an extremely famous Hollywood personality. <laughs> and, Did he write that question for and, you? <laughs> and Jewish sports Hall of Famer of Northern California. 